0: Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Talking Late Night. I'm your host, Max Cantor, and today on the show, I have the executive director of CSZ Worldwide. He has performed improv with uh, Comedy Sports, Second City, and I.O., and he's also taught improv to many different companies and at the Second City Training Center in Chicago as an associate faculty member. So please welcome to the show, Matt Elwell. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks, Max. Good to be here. Was that a good introduction? Did you like that? I I, you know, you nailed all the high points. Excellent. I'm glad because I, you know, I I do my research on you and I want to make sure that I hit all all the high points. So it's good. I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoy that. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, You're a unique guest because you're in like the business world of comedy and I haven't had somebody in the business world yet. So I'm excited to learn about what you do and how you got involved in it. I'm very excited. Oh, me too. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, perfect. And uh, to start off the interview, to just uh, get started, how did you uh-huh. become interested in comedy? So like growing up, what were some influences that may have influenced your interest in comedy? You know, I
1: actually came to comedy late in life. My my plan was to be a kind of hoity-toity Shakespearean actor. Um, and, and that was even when I got involved in theater, which was in college. Before then, I had planned to become a minister. So I kind of bounced all over the place and didn't really get seriously interested in comedy as a career until
0: about 1999 when I moved out to Chicago. Oh, wow. So you, Mm. wow, that's very interesting. So when you went to like college and stuff, you were not thinking about comedy until you ended up in Chicago.
1: Right. Like I had done some comedic plays. I did Rumors by Neil Simon and stuff like that. Um, And I enjoyed that. But, you know, I kind of, considered my path to be kind of
0: theater, you know? Okay. So what made you interested in theater and the arts? Uh, I had always kind of enjoyed acting. I
1: was in school plays and stuff. And then when I got to college, I fell in with a group of fairly, I would say fairly serious amateurs. We were, we're in a group called E52 student theater at university of Delaware. And even though we, you know, we weren't actually part of the, the university's theater program, Um, you know, we worked very hard at putting on good shows. And, you know, we were we were the drama kids. Mm -hmm. And so what
0: brought you to Chicago?
1: I came out to see the Chicago Improv Festival, the second the it was the second annual in 1999. That was in April of 99. And I just kind of I had one of those, you know, those moments where you guess this is what I'm doing with the last of my life. <laughs> uh, um, I had never known all the things that improv could be until I saw them all in one place over one week. And, you know, a month later, I was living in some guy's apartment, you know, trying to trying to figure it all out.
0: Did you know, like, were you an improviser? Like, were you aware of what improv was when you went to check it out? All I
1: knew about was short form before then. So I had mm-hmm. done some short form. I had I had used improv actually. I've got tape of me in like 1993 teaching um at Toastmasters mm-hmm. uh, how to do uh extemporaneous speaking using improv games as kind of a, you know, a teaching tool. So I'd been using it that way, but you know, I I had no idea about long form. I you know, was very um uh didn't have a didn't really know a lot about sketch comedy. So you know, my my understanding was very was very limited before I came here, and that's why, you know, when I finally saw here and all the kind of diversity of work, um, and and you know, because it was the improv festival, it, there were teams from LA, Burn Manhattan was here, there were just all kinds of different approaches to improvisation. So it just kind of clicked for me.
0: Mm mm-hmm. So you move to Chicago. Did you move with the goal of like, I'm going to continue being an actor, like a straight actor, like what you were talking about? Or were you now totally on the improv train? And that's what you wanted?
1: I was on the improv train. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was. I was coming to, to, to study improvisation. I thought I might do sketch comedy. But really, I fell in love with the idea of taking a suggestion and going,
0: you know. Mm-hmm. how did you incorporate at the beginning at least your trainings in Shakespeare acting and professional play acting how did you take your teachings from that and translate it to help you do improv
1: well it helped me be very pretentious which yeah. everyone loves in an improviser yeah. uh you know I, I think some of the technique of you know as at, a at time you know dialects and genre work and stuff like that where you're you know, I think more than anything else, it gave me a frame of reference. You know, um, so that when you know an audience said Shakespeare, an audience said a playwright, you know, or uh, a style, you know, I could inhabit that world. Um, you know, so it just kind of color. You know, I'd say one thing about improv is that it's it's useful to have a point of view. It's useful to have kind of a sense of what what you think is funny and and the kinds of characters you want to inhabit and the kinds of Ideas you want to bring, uh, and so it became kind of my lens through which I you know saw uh, you know how I could plug into the improv world.
0: right. It, and it seems like what you're saying too is at the beginning, it helped you do character work. I mean, you were able to come up with really good characters because of your acting background.
1: Well, I mean, you know, God bless if they were actually really good. But, yeah. you know, the, the main thing was, is, yeah, you know, uh, I spent a year at a resident company in, in Pennsylvania called the Hedgerow Theater. And so we dealt with, you know, trapping energy in one place in your body to create a different shape to your character's body and backstory and stuff. So, yeah, I would say that I had some, I had some traditional theater experience that, that was a good foundation for all the improv classes I was taking.
0: Did improv click with you like immediately, or did it take a little bit for you to finally find your footing?
1: Uh, Yeah, this all presupposes I was good. Um, I uh, I I guess what I would say is that it took me a while to unlearn some bad habits around improvisation, and you know, to work on myself a little bit. Um, But uh, you know, so so I'd say the you know, the classes were really valuable. I mean, for me, when I kind of got rolling, you know, after kind of getting in the door of a couple theaters, I was doing something around improv, either watching a set or uh, performing or taking a class or rehearsing with a team, like six nights a week, you know? Mm -hmm. So after a year or two of doing that, you know, it, it was less like kind of you know, learning a foreign language and more about just getting dropped in that country and and learning the language from within.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you have a, thinking back to like the very beginning of your improv journey, do you have a lesson or rule that you learned that you consider to be the most important rule or the golden rule that you always followed?
1: I'd say that the the only thing that really comes up for me when you say that is, is the first one of the first things I learned. And and it really wasn't about technique as much um, as an as orientation to the work. So, you know, being that it was 1999, there were still some people around that aren't around anymore. And one of them was Martin DeMott uh, from the Second City, the, the artistic director. And as part of the Chicago Improv Festival, on that kind of like last day, we all kind of improv geek student types were sitting in the main stage of Second City and there was Martin kind of sitting up on a, uh, one of the Bentwood chairs. And, you know, he just gave a talk. We didn't improvise. We didn't do anything. He just gave a talk. But towards the end of it, you know, um, uh, Martin was related to Josephine Forsberg. He'd been doing the work his entire life. Um, you know, he kind of eat, slept, and breathed uh, improv. So he said, I want you to know, and, and, and this is as close to the quote as I can probably get, uh, I want you to know that I'm the foremost living expert on this work in the world. And I tell you that. So you'll believe me when I tell you this, you can do this work. You are enough to do this work. And it changed my life. Whoa.
2: That's, there, that's there deep. Stuff, it,
1: yeah. There's something about, you know, I, I was talking to, to somebody else um, who, uh, who uh, said, you know, thank you for giving me, a permission I didn't know I needed. Um, there was something about him saying that that was a permission that I didn't know I needed. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, growing up, growing up as a Christian and being interested in ministry, um, I'm kind of used to some kind of older man saying something profound <laughs> and going, "Oh, okay, that's how it is now." Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of really fit with my gig to. To have a kind of old wizened master go, here it is. Um, and it just kind of set me on the path, you know. And I never got to take a class with him. Um, he died shortly thereafter, and uh, I never actually had him at Second City. I, I literally
0: just sat in that class, with it, that, that one talk. And that was all I got. Wow. And it was so meaningful. That one time was so meaningful.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think in comedy we tend to have a real kind of, like, a, a an almost performative thick skin. Like, that that we almost go out of our way to try and not have intimacy with each other. <laughs> and to have a guy kind of drop all the bits and just talk to us. I mean, he was talking to us as if, you know, this was an art. You know, because that's what he deeply, deeply believed. And and it, it, it translated, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so after that, I mean, hearing that, it has to make you, like you said, believe in yourself and realize, okay, like I can do this. So when did you feel that you had reached the point where you felt like you could teach others? How long was that? Mm. I would uh, I, I would say one thing is, is that
1: I had already been teaching some traditional theater stuff at mm-hmm. Hedro and I'd actually taught some basic improv for actors kind of stuff where we were really using it just as a kind of a training tool. So I had taught before, but I would say that where I really started, I don't know, thinking I could teach in Chicago was I think around 2003.
0: Okay. So it was like, uh, what, four years after Mm -hmm. you had, you had first started. So
1: do you, Yeah, and that was also at comedy sports. So, you know, that was, that was teaching at the first place that actually started paying me Mm. as an improviser. The first Mm -hmm. place I was a professional, you know,
0: Mm. do you remember like at the very beginning of your teaching career, uh, do you remember any difficulties that you faced, uh, having trouble translating the material from performer to teacher to then to the students?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, you know, it's, they say like for playwrights that you spend your first three plays, writing like the playwrights you like, and it's not until you write your fourth play that you write like yourself. Mm. Um, I I spent so many classes either trying to teach like other people or teaching like what I thought I should be teaching, but it was all very much (laughs) me way more wrapped up in myself than I ever was in my students, (laughs) and and that was part of the problem, right? Um, There's this guy, Jimmy Corrine, who has this great line and says, don't let your fear get caught up in their fear. And so when my students wouldn't do well, I would think of that as a reflection of myself. I would start acting in reaction to that. They would pick up on that and that would put them further in their heads. And so, you know, it was just this kind of death spiral of, you know, I wasn't being really open and present with them. And so, you know, they were, that was an added barrier to them being open and present. And i you know and and i 'm sure there are other kind of gifted people who don 't start that way and and you know are, are their first class is is awesome and amazing and they're awesome and amazing, but for me, I really had a lot of kind of uh, cutting away you know cutting away my own b s to get to a point where I was of any use to anybody
0: you know mm. what do, what do I would you, say what do you say as as a teacher and you 've been doing it for such a long time as a teacher? what do you see the biggest uh, difficulty with students, improv students being?
1: Well, and and to be honest with you, you know, I would say it's probably been since 2009 or 10 that I was actually teaching improv for improvisers besides the occasional workshop. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, mostly what I do now is I teach improv to, you know, corporate types for, you know, to achieve some kind of, learning outcome that matters to their company. Right. And, mm-hmm. and what, what does not matter to their company is that they do good scene work. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, so, so, so this might be, you know, old information, but I think at the time, part of what I was wrestling with was, um, improvisers having a kind of discipline that, um, they've never had to have before. So, like, one of the things that's a big challenge for improvisers is, especially in this city, is there's so many opportunities to play that they can be on, uh, you know, a Herald team and they can be on a playground team and they can be on a, you know, like a one group mind team now. You know, there's, they can be in uh, a level five show and they can be in this show and that show. And they tend to just kind of fill their schedule chock-a-block and they they've got no time to, A, reflect on their own practice to make it, you know, a conscious practice Mm -hmm. of self-improvement. But they're also sometimes not giving any one of these particular artistic projects um, the real kind of soulful attention it deserves. You know, when you're doing this right, it can be exhausting. So when people are, like, cutting one rehearsal so they can do a show somewhere else and, you know, trying to balance a team and a show and this and that, that, you know it's almost like they're kind of, you know, at the roulette table, right? And they're just putting money down on different numbers, hoping that one hits
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and not realizing that the paradigm of gambling is what's screwing them. You know, if they invested in a couple of them, then they would become the kind of person who could go somewhere next.
0: Mm -hmm. So it's just so I understand what you're saying. You're talking about uh, like uh, instead of spreading yourself so thin to focus on certain places, and certain things. Am I getting you right?
1: I mean, that that was certainly a challenge at the time, is that people weren't kind of focusing on just a few, you know, two or three artistic projects tops.
0: Right. Do you think you think today improvisers are spreading themselves too thin by taking on team after team after team and performing at all these different theaters?
1: I'd be surprised if it was very different. I mean, it might be somebody who actually teaches more regularly now in Chicago might be like, Oh yeah, no, now everybody just go, j- just has one team. But mm-hmm. I kind of doubt it. I, I kind of think that, you know, the, 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 the drive to success and the drive to be seen, um, is, is, is still very strong. Right. Mm-hmm. And the idea of I'm going to just invest myself for a couple years in craft and I'm going to turn down opportunities so I can focus on a, on a chosen few, um,
0: is probably asking a lot of people.
2: Mhm.
0: Right. So you mentioned you mentioned earlier that now you're teaching for corporate uh you do a lot of corporate gigs where you go and work with a corporation. Um it's is there ever a time where I mean like you said you got to you got to do what the corporation wants you to do and get to the outcome that they want. But there is there ever a time where you're watching it and it's just like it's so difficult to to watch because it's it's hard improv to watch.
1: No, because what we're doing in the corporate setting is, is I, I think maybe, you know, I've worked with hundreds of, of companies and hundreds of, of groups, um, and I'd say only maybe twice have I done scene work with them. Mm. Um, most of the time, what we're doing is we're playing the real simple Spolen games and Johnstone games. That are kind of underneath it all right like their games like you'd never have an audience come in and be like now we're going to perform zip zap stop for you you <laughs> yes, know what i mean right it's, right it's the drama it's the drama camp stuff that mm-hmm. kids do um and the reason is, is because for a lot of the stuff i'm teaching we're trying to break down into very specific foundational behaviors right so eye contact tone of voice um you know body language and then we're building up for that to maybe more complex things like you know, how to have a sales conversation, um, you know, how to have a, you know, um, how to do conflict resolution, um, you know, how to, how to manage a team, how to share your vision, you know, all these kinds of things that kind of almost kind of aggregate up from these, these itty bitty kind of improv things. And, and also we're not just like in a, in a training that I lead, improv is going to be, is going to factor heavily into it because that's my lens, but you know, I'm also going to be doing other stuff like role play and facilitated discussion and stuff that's, you know, even PowerPoint slides. Like, you know, it, it really is a blending of improv and more traditional means of instruction.
0: Mm, okay. And so uh, are you doing that like year round or is it more sporadic? I, it, it, used to be, uh, it used to
1: be there was a really clear off season. You know, and that off season could be um, anywhere from like April through to September.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: like you know, my my last gig so uh, on my horizon is August third. Mm. So you know, I might not do anything else in August. But you know, organizations are getting more and more hip to the need for soft skills as a differentiator, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, the, you know, we're seeing more and more, um, you know, at least looking, looking for one-offs, if not for kind of larger campaign based work.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you, do you see that, or do you think that companies are looking, uh, to get a uh, training organizations through improv and through like what you guys do because they're hiring younger and younger people. And so it is like, it is the cooler and the hipper way to, to train employees.
1: I I don't think they're doing it because, like, I I don't think they're doing improv to be relevant. Mm. Um, If anything, though, I think what they may be dealing with is that soft skills aren't something that are really taught very much in school. Mm -hmm. They're being integrated now more into MBA programs, uh, but we're still seeing, like, you know, people get some functional expertise under their belts, and, you know, organizations that do a lot of campus hiring get these people in. They know whatever their degree is in. They go through some initial training to get whatever their functional requirements are in the workplace. But then there's the whole kind of thing of, you know, how do I get along with people and how do I make my point? If if all I've ever been done is asked to kind of, you know, listen as a new employee and now a year later you tell me, well, what do you think? Who's going to help me frame that that thing I think? Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, improv is so important and that's, that's, I feel like a lot of people don't realize that every single day they incorporate skills that are essential in improv. So it's cool to see that, you know, people like you are going into companies to teach improv, essentially teach improv skills to help people be better employees. Like it's weird to think, but it's useful.
1: Well, and there's a, you know, there's kind of a circularity there, right? Because, you know, in fact, I, I just, took this incredible workshop at our Comedy Sports World Championship with Aretha Sills, who's, you know, Paul Sills' daughter and um, Viola Swan's granddaughter, and, you know, she was talking about how the work began and that, you know, this improv was being done, you know, basically with poor kids who didn't know English. You know, they were immigrant children, and they needed to be socialized. And so, you know, she with her mentor, Neva Boyd, were using these, basically games, just kind of little kids' games to help them kind of learn how to, you know, get along, work together, express themselves. Um, So that's really all we're doing. It's just now with older, um, you know, older, smarter kids who get paid more money.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, definitely. So now that we're, you know, we're talking about you and your company and comedy sports, tell me about how you got involved with CSZ. And uh, what is CSE Worldwide? Sure. So, you know, my first professional gig in
1: Chicago in August of 2000, I got hired to be a part of the ensemble of what was then called the Comedy Sports Theater, which is right here in Chicago. Um, Now we're on Belmont. uh, And now it's called CSE Theater Chicago. And and one of the main reasons we we changed that name um, is because we do a lot more than comedy sports. And, you know, comedy sports will always be, you know, near and dear to our hearts because, it's, it's kind of the marquee offering and it's all ages friendly. Um, so it's really a show that anyone can see, you know, Mm. as someone who kind of grew up religious, one of the things that was really exciting to me is it was the one improv show that I could have my mom and dad come see and (laughs) and know they weren't going to be offended. Right. Mm, So mm. it was kind of really cool. It had a, it had a really kind of cool place in my heart. It was short form. It was what I kind of grew up doing. It's what I grew up watching on TV, uh, with whose lines it anyway. Um, So, you know, it kind of, it, it tied in a lot of things for me. Um, and so I started playing there, um, uh, started doing corporate work through them and Dave Gaudet who, um, who owned comedy sports, um, you know, and continued to, to be a mentor for me and open a lot of doors for me. And, uh, so, you know, I learned a lot about the, basically the, the profession of comedy when, when what really matters is getting an audience to enjoy their experience and how you have to pay, you know, attention to their reactions and, you know, adjust what you're doing accordingly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so, you know, I started as an actor, and I thought, you know, my greatest aspiration when I was an actor was, or an improviser at, at Comic Sports, was to one day be an artistic director. You know, I thought it would be cool to basically be responsible for getting an ensemble to perform this show well, um, and. Uh, then, you know, I, I got hired into the office staff basically as, as kind of my day job. I worked in PR and I worked in running their training center. Um, and then I finally, you know, worked my way up in 2007 to being the artistic director and I was artistic director from 2007 to 2010. But then, um, you know, some things, uh, were going on and there was an opportunity, um, for me to use some of what I had been learning as a corporate trainer to actually run the business. And so from 2010 to 2015, uh, I was the president. So now I'm, you know, I'm running this $1 million company, <laughs> um, you know, with an English degree. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, but I used, you know, kind of what I had learned through improvisation, events or my history in the business, um, to do what I can with it. Um, but at the same time, you know, comic sports here in Chicago is part of a larger network, you know, it's basically a, a network of 28 different um, creative organizations, each with their own um, ensemble of, of really creative people, and they're actors and directors and teachers. And um, uh, but they're also trainers, and they're all over the country and in um, and in the UK. And so, after 2015, I got an opportunity that I just couldn't turn down of becoming the executive director of that larger licensing body. Mm-hmm. So. You know, what I do now mostly is I work from home and I'm on calls with, um, you know, owners of CSE companies around the country and, and in the UK and talking to them about what they can do to, you know, improve their offerings and do things like this applied improvisation, corporate training things that I do um, and ways that we can work together more and really provide a united front and, and coordinate our efforts, um, you know, as these kinds of, integrated comedy theaters, but also applied improvisation corporate
0: services companies. Mm -hmm. So when you were working your way up from uh, performer to teacher to uh, artistic director and on and on and on, when you became artistic director, what was your vision for the theater and did the theater ever reach that vision that you had for it? Kind of. Uh, <laughs> that would be my answer. Kind of. Yeah. I would give myself
1: a C. plus. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was really impressed, being a student who went through IO, uh, then back when I was at Improv Olympic, um, I was really impressed by the devotion they had to innovate long form. So they had the Herald, and they could have hung their hat on the Herald forever, but they built out and created all these other different forms, you know, which was largely, I think, part of Dell's vision. Um, but, you know, there was the Armando, and then every 5B class was inventing their own form, you mm-hmm. know, so they were continuing to build on this idea. And, you know, there was no one doing that for short form. Short form was, was kind of considered the entertainment, and long form was the art. Mm-hmm. And so I really wanted um, comedy sports to be kind of the artistic home for short form. And I wanted to be innovating new works with short form, and so during my time as artistic director, we were creating other kind of short form based experiences.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, uh, You know, some were kind of hearkening back to the kind of scenario play idea um, ideas that started the compass. You know, but but still, this you know the thing that makes short form short form. I think is that there's some kind of break in the action where we, you know, bring the audience into the conversation. Mm -hmm. Right. And that we do that several times throughout the experience and that their kind of live input is guiding that experience.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So we were doing that. We were having our students, what we called our Genesis League at the time. um, Now our house teams, um, you know, we're creating these kind of brand new works. And so I was very proud of that. And I'm proud that they still kind of do things like that where, you know, new teams aren't just, you know, playing comedy sports, but they're actually creating their own approach to short form. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think short form is a valid art that deserves people to continue to try and, you know, create new games, but also create these, these new kind of shows around the games that tell other stories besides just the kind of competitive sports parody story that we tell with
0: comedy sports. Mm-hmm. is there a short form format that you have played with or that you came up with that is your favorite
1: yeah it was my favorite but the audience didn't like it oh. <laughs> 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 what, what was um, it uh, it was called cocktail hour uh-huh. uh, and basically what it was, was what if the Rat Pack did improv so <laughs> we basically had a group of guys in, 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 in uh, suits and, uh, you know, women in dresses, and we had a a small side cart out on stage, like a, a small bar
2: mm-hmm. out on
1: stage, and we played jazz music. And, you know, it, it was one of those things where I think I had a big corporate job in the middle of it or something, and I wasn't able to give it the attention it deserved before it opened. But, you know, I really wanted to kind of create a different approach to short form. And it it, it you know, I'd love another whack at it, but it just didn't quite, you know, become its own thing and and that's one of the hard things especially in a you know an environment like csv where comedy sports is such the you know is such the trope is that when you're trying to create new works you you really need some escape velocity or it just becomes you know like all those movies that were like it's die hard on a train it's die hard in an airplane it's die hard here it's die Hard Mm -hmm. there it's really easy when you have such a strong point of view in a in the mainstage show to make all your experimental work just kind of that in a different context, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I, I I never I I don't think it ever really got as far as I wanted it to.
0: Oh, okay, but I I like the idea. It reminds me. I saw a couple years ago, and I don't remember what they were called, but they were a group, a duo out of Los Angeles, and there they were like a, a time period improv. So they dressed like it was the 1950s and all their scenes had to do with the 1950s. Like every single <laughs> one, no matter what you Did, suggested.
1: Was it called quarters in June?
0: Yes. Yes. That's who it yep. was. Yes. Uh,
1: I, I just saw them. We were just in LA for our 2018 comedy sports world championship. Wow. In quarters in June, which is out of CSZ LA. It's out of our Los Angeles, um, company.
0: Okay. Um,
1: they 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 did their show for us to show us what they did, and it was so cool.
0: It yeah. oh man, it was so funny. And it, but it, when you were when you were describing your format to me, I was like, hey, I like I I know something that's so familiar to this. Um, and I mean, it's so it's so unique. That's what I like about it. It's so unique, and that's why I liked mm-hmm. them, and that's why I like your idea. So why don't you think? I mean, I know you said that you couldn't give the attention it deserved, but why don't you think the audience uh, was fully on board with it?
1: You know, I, I think we we're in a Friday midnight slot, oh. so it was a tough slot for it as well. You mm-hmm. know, one of, one of the other issues is that when you can't get a prime time slot, and you can't really, you know, I would say the 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 houses that really responded to it were the larger houses.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, that
1: it, it, it kind of needed that critical mass.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, I'm not saying that in the hands. <laughs> in the hands of a more competent director, uh, <laughs> it might've been phenomenal, but, uh, it would also need, um, you know, it also needs an audience that's really, you know, hip to that vibe mm-hmm. too. Cause you are creating that kind of, you know, I think one of the reasons why we're really attracted to that time period and things like mad men and, you know, the beat generation is that there was, there was almost a permission to be sophisticated
2: mm-hmm. that
1: nowadays comes off as pretense.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it's kind of a shame, like, like you know that that kind of Oscar Wilde sensibility of, you know, I'm saying something a certain way because it's smarter, you know, I'm taking the long way around, uh, is is
0: something that we shouldn't we shouldn't throw away quite quite so readily. Mm-hmm. And the thing, the other thing that I like about it too is a lot of improv today, at least improv that I've seen, when when the scene occurs, it. There's never like a, a time period established. It's always like present day is what the assumption is. And so to go all the way back to the 1950s for every single scene is so unique to me. And it impacts, mm-hmm. it impacts so many things that you wouldn't think about where it's like, all right, you can't just whip out your cell phone. Because if you do, now you've got this mysterious piece of technology that you're dealing with. So it, it makes the improvisers, you got to think a little bit harder. And that's fun to watch. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and what's also fun is if you look at it through the lens of, of kind of what I do is as quarter, quarters in June, you know, our, our two kind of main characters bring up their guests. What you essentially have is short form. Right. Right. Because they're bringing up a guest and the guest kind of does a little bit of their own. They often take a suggestion there. So, you know, basically the quarters in June are, are kind of our referee for their own, you know, their own short form story. Mm -hmm. which is exactly the kind of thing that I'd like to see more of is people honoring this tradition of short form, but creating whole new storylines and arcs that we, you know, that carry our audience along. And it's not just, you know, a a team in their, you know, you know, jeans and flannel with a kind of wrinkly piece of paper going, okay, now we're going to do new choice. And it's going to be these people who are going to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, you know, that there should be a panache, there should be a larger play around it that we're following as an audience
0: right right i i totally agree and your opinion is very interesting because a lot of people who i've spoken with love the herald love the long form but you're all for short form and i like it because i i prefer short form myself um Mm -hmm. and so it's very cool that that's what you're that's what you're pushing for and that's what you have pushed for do you uh do you still perform today or are you mainly a teacher uh, I,
1: I, I do perform occasionally, when, you know, um, and I would say, you know, back to the point, I will say that our best performers in comedy sports, at least in Chicago, you know, also have a robust long form career. I think mm-hmm. the two forms really learn from each other, um, you know, so I, I really appreciate the, the time that I spent in long form uh, as a performer myself. You know, I play comedy sports usually about twice a month. Is kind of what I get to. But, you know, a big part of the story that I tell to my clients is that, you know, I, I kind of stand in, the, in both worlds, the improv world and the teaching world. And I find that that's a harder claim to to make when I'm not performing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the tough thing about long form, though, is that you're with you're really you're really beholding to a team. You really need to you, ne- you need to honor the team that you're on. So when you're doing a lot of corporate work and you're all over the place for time and your schedule's not really your own, I think that's a lot harder. Whereas with comedy sports there's an ensemble of fifty people. So I can slot in for two matches a month mm-hmm. and if if I can't do it or if I can do more, it's not really inconveniencing anybody else.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: you know, the format itself I think really helps with people who do have very busy schedules or they're delivering services in other, you know, in in other modes besides just performing comedy sports.
0: How does a theater go about getting that format? And if you guys are, like, choosing who gets it, how do you pick?
1: Sure. I I would probably say what you may have seen is Dad's Garage doing theater sports. So that's a cousin of ours. And, 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 you know, it's kind of where we started. Basically, Dick Chudnow started comedy sports in 1984 as a theater sports team. Um, you know, one of, you know, part of D- Keith Johnstone's creation, but you know, their, their angle, and it is a short form angle, and I think it deserves a lot of respect for what they do is that they unashamedly create theater and it's, sometimes it's comedy and sometimes it's drama. And, you know, they're not nearly as kind of beholding to, uh, you know, the, an audience. Having a comedy experience is of, of, of them just having a theatrical experience. So I think where there's, where where, where theater sports really does kind of do theater, you know, with, with an R E, mm-hmm. um, comedy sports is comedy. Like, you know, our real goal is that that audience has a great time when they leave. Now, you know, if we will have some scenes that have some real emotional stakes to them, uh, you know, we will have some, you know, even though it's a kind of an all-ages-friendly show, the way to make it kind of not a kid's show is to make it smart, right? And Mm -hmm. to kind of do some things around the edges. So, you know, I still think, I think an adult gets a lot out of a comedy sports match when they see it. Um, But it is, you know, it was substantially different in Dick's kind of conception than what theater sports was, that, you know, the story is that theater sports said you know this you're you're really not doing what what's important to us you should probably go you know kind of go off on your own mm-hmm. and so that's when he kind of changed the name and and really you know pursued this this comedy for the sake of comedy you know the sport of comedy kind of approach you know but there's a lot of cities like seattle has both the theater sports and the comedy sports and you know I think you could go to one one night and the other, you know, the next night and have two very different experiences. You'd certainly see similarities, but I think you wouldn't, you know, it would, It's you know, neither are ever the same show twice and both kinds of, both groups go at it very differently.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you go to open a comedy sports theater, um, all you got, that, that is its own brand, is comedy sports, and it will be the comedy sports theater. It won't be... It won't be like it'll
1: that. be a Cez now, a and CSE and that's theater. the one thing is, you know, we, we figured out when these comedy sports just started that you know we were calling ourselves the comedy sports theater, and then as our theaters diversified, started doing other work, it got really kind of muddy to right. explain that you know comedy sports is this all just show, but then there's this theater also called comedy sports that has late night dirty shows. Mm -hmm. And then there's this company called comedy sports, that also does corporate training. It was like, well, well, then what is comedy sports? Right. Mm -hmm. So in, in 2012, um, we did this rebranding where we could really say, look, if you see the word comedy sports, we're talking about the all ages comedy competition between two teams of professional improvisers. Right.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: and if you see CSE, then that's kind of the umbrella around that. And, Mm -hmm. You know, CSE might produce comedy sports or it might produce, you know, the blue show or it might produce a series of student shows or it might have a training center um, or it might do corporate work, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, you know, and that's what it all cascades from. But to, you know, answer your question, um, you know, we're not franchises, we're not centrally owned, we actually are licensing intellectual property. So, you know, if you're being that you're in Atlanta Max, you know, if you want to start Uh, bringing comedy sports to Atlanta, all you need is a theater that'll let you do it. And then you give me a call and say you're interested. And we start talking about, you know, how how would you make CSE viable in your market? Mm -hmm. And then you basically get a license to do comedy sports, just like you'd go to, you know, Samuel French to license a Neil Simon play, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and there's a lot more services, like we plug into all the other managers so you can kind of learn from other people who do it. But the, the exciting thing is that the individual theater has a lot of artistic control. You know, I mean, yes, you're doing this one show that we all do, but it's an improvised show, and so you have a lot of flexibility there as long as you hold true to the kind of the tenants that we tell our audience, mm-hmm. right? Our brand is always just friendly. You have to do a clean show. But, you know, you can go to see comedy sports in Quad Cities at the Establishment Theater, and aside from comedy sports, every other show they do there is their own unique creation. Mm. You know, whether it's the Dueling Piano show they do or the long-form shows they do, or this they have this great touring show called Guys in Ties that they take around. So, you know, and those are all homegrown products.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: you know, what what really excites me, you know, maybe from an artistic uh, side and maybe from a business side kind of equally, is that really what Comedy Sports is or C.O.Z. is, is these 28 different creative networks that are each creating their own cool stuff and then they can work together when there's a client who needs to work in multiple cities,
2: mm-hmm. or they
1: want to do a tour, or they just want to get together every year and play comedy sports for each other like we do at the Comedy Sports World Championships.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. It is really creating this kind of family of comedy sports shows underneath, like you said, the CSZ umbrella. And that's pretty cool that everybody's working to help make each other the best they can be.
1: Yeah. And and they're share like, you know, we saw quarters in June because uh, the L.A. team was showcasing some of their some of the work that they created on their own. Mm -hmm. Right. So that we could see it and be inspired by that and the stuff that, you know, and 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 that we could learn from that as we're creating all of our own work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's all, it, you know, and, and I'm glad you used the word family. Cause you know, we just had 250 of our players in LA all kind of hanging out, learning together for a week, having an amazing time, but also kind of taking workshops that each other, that they taught, mm-hmm. you know, they're teaching each other, you know, one taught a workshop on Shakespeare and one taught a workshop on, um, we actually had this incredible diversity and inclusion day where, You know, some LGBT players taught a workshop on how to authentically um, portray LGBT people, characters, Mm -hmm. you know, on stage in a respectful way. And then there was another one on, you know, um, uh, playing disabled characters with integrity. And, you know, how do you do that? And, you know, there was another on gender. And how do you, if you're a man, how do you play a woman authentically on stage without making fun? You know, so, you know, in, in a in a time which is really scary for people who are different, it's really cool to see this group of people come together and have each other's backs.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like, you know, everyone's having a good time. Everyone's being supportive. And that means these theaters that are performing comedy sports, the shows are just going to get better. Once everyone's learning and working yeah. with each other, There's it can only get better. And so that leads me to my next question for you, which is, as the executive director, what is your future vision for CSE Worldwide? Where do you see it going? And where do you hope to see it go? I would
1: like to see CSE Worldwide as an exemplar of the values of improv. And and what I mean by that is, you know, we have these values that we talk about a lot, collaboration, inspiration, gratitude, and fun. And we learned those values from playing comedy sports. And what I think is really cool is when we either go into an organization with a workshop or we go to a corporate event with our, you know, with a roadshow of comedy sports or where we just have a group of people in our theaters, you know, watching comedy sports, um, is the chance that that gets rubbed off on them and that they're seeing the kind of bright and bold and fun, but ultimately, you know, accepting way that comedy sports players treat each other. You know, we tell the story of competition. And for a lot of us, we want to win. Like as a comedy sports player, I want to be the team that wins.
0: It, right.
1: But I also know that I can't make that. If I, that if I take that desire to win to the extreme and I hurt the other team, or I do something to denigrate them, that not only will I probably not win, but the show's not going to win and the audience is not going to win. The mm-hmm. fans aren't going to win. So there's this kind of larger sense of sportsmanship and dignity that comes out. And man, I wish our whole world got that note. You know, I wish our whole world got the note that, you know, nothing is more important than the advancement of human dignity. Not, mm-hmm. you know, it's, if you can make an extra 10 bucks but you just have to forget that whole dignity part, it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. And, and we should all be better scene partners to each other. And I think that's kind of what comedy sports teaches and just the way it does what it does.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Matt, uh, for my final question for you, is a question that I ask every single guest. And it's a uh, oh. it, yeah, so brace yourself, get ready. It's <laughs> if you were to give one piece of advice to uh, someone who eventually wants to be in your shoes, what piece of advice would you give them? Pay attention.
1: I think that would probably be the best thing I could say. I, I think I spent a lot of time early in my career really kind of overly focused on, you know, how was I doing? What were people thinking of me? Was I going to get through this audition? Was I going to get on Turco? You know, what you know, how how was I, you know, being perceived? I did I did just a lot of kind of I was in my head, you know, and we tell actors, we tell improvisers all the time, get out of your head, get into your body, be present with us. And, you know, when I do, a, I do keynotes and I talk about that the fact that we call it paying attention because it costs, it costs a lot of energy for most of us to quiet the inner voice and really pay attention to what the needs of our ensemble is, the needs of the people around us, um, to what's going on in the culture. Uh, and I think that's got to be the first step to, to really being an artist with this and being a serious professional, you know, is that
0: you have to be paying attention. I like it. Paying attention. That, well, <laughs> yeah, uh you know what? That you're correct. Yeah, that that is the right answer. Good answer to that. question. Oh, good. Yep, you got good. it. Good. Yeah. Did you have the answer key? Is that is that how you know that? that? That's right. I had it. I had it here on a sheet of paper, and word for word. You, you, oh, thank God! You did it. You did it. <laughs> I was so worried
1: about <laughs> about failing the final. <laughs>
0: yeah. So Matt, if people want to learn more about CSZ or comedy sports, or maybe just learn more about you and which way, which ways can they do that uh, via website or how can they do that?
1: Yeah, I would have them start with CSZ worldwide at CSZ worldwide or CSZ worldwide for our, you our our, our European guests. Yeah. Um, and 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 uh, the com, right? And that will basically kind of introduce what Coz Worldwide is—the kind of applied improvisation stuff we do for business. But also, if hey, you're in a city where we're not, and you don't know why we're not there yet, um, that's where you can get uh, in touch with me about uh, you know possibly starting up uh, comedy sports there. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and then me, I don't, I don't, I don't really have. Uh, much going on Uh, you you can uh, probably my LinkedIn I guess if you want to know more about me but really you know CSZ Worldwide is the story I work with a lot of um, a lot of partners but you know it all it all comes back to CSZ or comedy sports at some point Mm
0: -hmm. well thank you Matt for being on the show I learned a lot today about you know comedy business and how CSZ works the difference between CSZ and comedy sports which I now now know Uh, so thank you for being on the show
1: Well, thank you very much, Max. I I appreciate you asking me.
0: Yeah, of course. And to anybody listening, remember, you can visit us at our website at www.talkinglatenight.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Talking Late Night. And you can find us on iTunes where you can rate and leave us a review. So thanks again to Matt for being on the show. Thanks to you for listening. And we'll see you next time.
2: (laughs) Uh-huh. <laughs>